The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined and rugged at the same time? Introducing the all-new RAV4 Hybrid. 208 combined horsepower and standard all-wheel drive make it the most powerful RAV4. Plus, with its head-turning style and breakaway speed, it's bound to change the way you think of a hybrid. The all-new RAV4 Hybrid. Toyota. Let's go places. Horsepower. Ratings achieved using the required premium and leather gasoline with an octane rating of 91 or higher. Premium fuel is not used. Performance will decrease. This week, I sit down with Sonny Moraine, author, sociologist, audio dramatist, for a chat about their horror podcast, Gone. It is one of the most challenging and satisfying interviews I've ever done, and I hope you get as much out of it as we did. We talk philosophy, horror, rage, and genocide, but it's not all doom and gloom, and Sonny is an absolute delight. That's all coming up right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. Sonny Moraine is a horror author, a devoted fan of The Walking Dead, and a compelling, talented performer. We talked about Gone, their dissertation, which is full disclosure about the Holocaust, but we refrain from getting too gruesome in this conversation, and a handful of quiet epiphanies. Take a listen. Sonny Moraine, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So what, what made you decide to branch out into audio fiction? Oh, God. Um, well, it, Starting Gone wasn't actually the first podcast I ever did. I have another podcast for the Walking Dead fandom, which is mostly just me doing interviews and me reading fan fiction. You know, I write prose and I also like to read aloud. It's just something I've always enjoyed doing. I came from a family that I kind of grew up on audio drama and my parents reading aloud to me. So this this came from a place. And I, I, I was really into Tannis and I was really into Alice Isn't Dead and Black Tapes and and you know, and within the wires and, and, you know, all those, all those big name podcasts that we all know. And I don't know where I got the idea to start doing one myself. It was just periodically I'll get these, these like impulses where I'm like, all right, this thing that I really enjoy is cool. I do know how to do something that edges into this skill set. Could I actually teach myself how to do it? Why don't I find out? And how I tend to find out whether or not I can do things like that is just by going ahead and jumping in and doing them. And turned out I kind of could. So, yeah. Awesome. Total impulse. If if I understood what you said correctly in the behind-the-scenes episode, I, I think you said basically that you, like, devised the show. Like, you'll improvise from notes and then cut it down in editing. Mm-hmm. Is that is that an accurate way to put it? Yes. It's... It, it, it's an interesting process because uh, a lot of the time, I mean, I'm just I'm just kind of throwing stuff out. It's not that what ends up being the initial raw file has no no resemblance to what I actually end up producing, but because I am just kind of I, I have a very rough outline of what I want to do in an episode, and I'm I'm just tossing a bunch of shit at the wall and seeing what sticks. <laughs> essentially, I'll I'll come to the end of recording an episode and just be like, that was terrible. There's nothing usable in there. I have n- I have no idea what I'm going to do now because I just spent an hour recording an episode and I've got nothing to work with. But then once I go through the editing process and I get rid of all the shit that didn't work, I almost always end up with something I'm marginally happy with. But but as as a process, it's extremely fraught and I have wondered more than once if I should just go ahead and do scripts. <laughs> but I I don't know. It's just yeah. 
what made you want to create in that way? Is this similar to how you write short fiction or was this, was it like part of it is out of a desire to affect this particular stream of consciousness style? Hmm. That's a really interesting question because, um, through this process, I've thought more than once, how, how is this different storytelling from how I actually write? And, uh, how I write short fiction tends to also be very stream of consciousness. I mean, how I write everything tends to be pretty stream of consciousness, but I think short fiction especially works well with that kind of process. And, I mean, I, I think it's similar in that I'm just sitting down to produce something and I'm just letting whatever flows flow. But, I mean, obviously when you're writing something down, you're writing it down. And in terms of how it feels to stream consciousness, I think there's a much more immediate quality when you're actually just talking. So I, I, I would say that I think it feels like I have a much more direct line from what is actually producing the content to my brain, because there's a lot less space between my mouth and my brain and my hands and my brain, which, again, makes it more exciting and interesting in some respects and also considerably more terrifying. <laughs> Yeah, something that's so fascinating to me about the show is how, like, I I, I heard you say that and I was so astonished. Um, something that I feel like really works about the show for me is how how quick and how fluent it is. Here's I, I, this is kind of a shot in the dark question. Do you do you LARP? Like, do you have any kind of like extemporaneous <laughs> speaking training? Like, wh where does this come from? It's got it's it's. It, it, it actually, like, it's really flattering to be asked that, I think, because it, it I feel like it's coming from a very complimentary place. Um, I, I met, uh, just a quick aside, I met Mac Rogers, uh, the Steal the Stars guy, at, um, I met him and Nat Cassidy in New York when I was doing a reading, and he asked me, Mac did basically the same exact question, and he was like, do you have any, do you have any training in acting or anything? I was like, no. <laughs> I mean, I did some acting when I was in middle and high school, but n no, no, I don't, I don't LARP. I don't do tabletop role-playing. Um, I, yeah, I've got basically no acting experience of any kind. I just, I, I, I guess the, the only thing that I do creatively that's similar at all is that I, when I'm working through written dialogue, a lot of times I will act it out, like while I'm doing the dishes or in the shower or some shit, just because I, I find that my dialogue reads much more naturally if I actually get a sense of the mouth feel. But that's really the only thing I can think of. That's fascinating. And you, Mac, and Nat all have the same editor at Tor, right? You all work with Marco Palmieri? Uh, in various capacities, yeah. Marco uh, has pretty much just worked with me in short fiction, but yeah, he's he's uh, one half, I think, of Tor Labs. So yeah, that's kind of an <laughs> an interesting little commonality between all three of us. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I wonder if there's a vector into other audio drama opportunities there. I sure wouldn't say no. I, I know that <laughs> I, I, I've, you know, I've been talking to Marco some about what's next for Tor Labs, and obviously I can't speak for them, but you know, I do know that they're they're kind of going back and looking at what worked with Steel of Stars and and what they can take forward into the next project. So yeah, there's going to be more stuff coming from them. Cool. Um, so Sunny, you said in the behind the scenes episode that you didn't want to make Gone a show like Lost and that you didn't want to ex <laughs> attempt to explain everything because some of those explanations would prove to ultimately be kind of disappointing. Mm -hmm. Wh where do you think the line is between generating questions in the plot and then disclosing their answers? Like what is, what is the balance? God, that's such an interesting question. <laughs> I really 
don't know. It's a, it's a, like I said, it's a question that I've been asking myself over and over through this process. And it's especially a, an interesting and uncomfortable question for me because when I first started out with the podcast, not even necessarily when I was conceiving it, but as I was recording the first episode, I didn't really know what the answers to a lot of these questions were. And maybe that's like a making the sausage piece of information that I shouldn't actually share with anybody. This is this whole show is all about making the sausage. So <laughs> I think I may have actually already admitted that in one of the behind the scenes episodes anyway. But yeah, I I was trying to grope toward toward an answer to some of these questions. Not not exactly contemporaneously with the audience, but I think in some respects, not unlike the audience. And I was struggling. It felt like, like I told you, my my interviews are usually big rambles. One of one of my favorite quotes from any writer is uh, William Gibson describing finishing a novel, which he says is like trying to do your best dance moves while carrying a full size refrigerator at waist level. <laughs> <laughs> that is that was what this felt like a lot. It felt like I was I was carrying so many questions and they were such big questions and I knew that I needed to answer some of them or else everybody was just going to hate me by the end of it. But I also needed to leave myself room to go somewhere in season 2 and at that point, even I still didn't understand everything. I still didn't have the answers to all of those questions. So I was trying to arrive at something that satisfied me enough. And I was trying to arrive at something that I thought would satisfy an audience enough. And what I ended up with was, honestly, I don't think I really answered anything. <laughs> I mean, I think I hinted at some cool possibilities. And I think I answered some very short-term questions. But those were the only questions I felt equipped to answer. And, and in terms of where the line is, I almost feel like I didn't have to come up against that line because there was a lot that I still didn't understand myself. It's not like at the end I had this master plan and I could reveal all of it or I could reveal none of it. I, I was just like, I guess this this seems to work. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not the best process, actually, I think, in some ways. There's so I I talk with my best friend Dave about world building a lot, and I'm not sure where this specific phrase came from. I don't think either of us coined it, but like something that he likes to say is that good story building, every detail pushes back the borders of the world a little bit, mm. like makes the horizon recede. And it's ironic because in Gone, that's the opposite of what happens: is that the horizon kind of like closes in on the protagonist a little bit more. Yeah. But yeah, what what do, what do you think of that idea that every like new detail doesn't close something up but unlocks something else in the distance? It's really interesting that you bring that up because um, I've been I've spent the last three days really really deep into what I hope will be my next novel, and it involves some really pretty deep world building. Oh, this cyberpunk thing. Yes, God, I, I really need this book to work because it's so cool in my head. But it's it's like. I'm trying not to do everything at once because I, there's so much there to do. So what I'm, I'm trying to get down to that level and think, okay, here is what I want to do with this character. Here is what this story requires. Here's what this character knows. You know, the character doesn't necessarily know all the details of trade between these three big city-states, so I don't necessarily need to have that in the story. But yeah, there's it's like it's like I've been trying to think a little bit ahead about what details am I going to need to include 
And how should I prepare for those details? Because I need to have some kind of answer for that lined up. So there's, it's, it's been this weird process of kind of, it actually, it really does feel like kind of pushing against something and, and seeing what happens when you manage to move it a little bit and then a little bit more and maybe getting a sense of what actually is bigger on the other side of that. And it's, it, it's, very, it's very different from what I went through with Gone because, again, I approached Gone so much by the seat of my pants and there was so much that I didn't know and didn't plan out ahead of time. It's, this may not be a good answer to your question, but, but it's, I guess my point is that I experienced two different versions of that and you're absolutely right. It was very different in one than it has been in the other, if that makes sense. Cool. No, I think that was a good answer. Awesome. Um, so in Gone, the protagonist is particularly and keenly aware of media, not in a precious way where they break the fourth wall and say like, this is a podcast, this is a work of fiction, but in that, in that they use their situation to comment on television and film tropes, like how nobody ever seems to worry about psychotropic medication and the aftermath of an apocalypse, or for example. Um, how, how else would you like to see media incorporate mental illness more and more accurately? Like what is, what were you aiming at with those, those comments from the protagonist? The, the, the first and most important thing that I was pushing back on, uh, that I think I, I, at some point in, in either a behind the scenes episode or a blog post or something was pretty explicit about, maybe on Twitter, was just like you said, the the fact that in most post-apocalyptic and apocalyptic stories, people with mental illness just it's it's sort of like what happens to people of color. Like we're just we're not there. <laughs> Something happens in like the first or second week and we're just not there. And that that's that's very disturbing, you know, coming from a from a position of a person who has mental illness because I mean, the implication there, and sometimes I think this is actually made explicit in, in some, some post-apocalyptic stories, the implication is that we're not strong enough to make it. And I, I obviously that's a problem. And I, I wanted to push back against that and do so in a setting where this, this character doesn't have other people to even rely on. She's completely relying on herself. And that I think is, that's a really severe way of telling the story. But But also I didn't, I didn't want to do what I think also can be done in other forms of media that try to tackle mental illness, which is to make it some kind of big recovery story and, you know, you know, overcoming the, the, you know, the problem. And suddenly I'm not mentally ill anymore. And I've discovered the strength inside myself that's healed me. And like one of my favorite uh, Marvel films is Iron Man 3 because it deals with mental illness. But at the very end of it, Tony Stark is basically fine and he doesn't have PTSD anymore. And I hate that. Yeah. So I, I wanted I wanted to not do that. I, I wanted to tell, I mean, I wanted to do what I would like to see other forms of media do, which is just tell a story about somebody with mental illness in a way that's real, like that actually reflects what this experience is like, which is you just you function because you you have to like you don't you don't overcome something you don't find strength within yourself necessarily but you know you ideally you get up and you do the shit you have to do and you just keep pushing forward and it's hard and it's it's painful and you don't win every day and maybe you don't even win the majority of the days but you just you keep you keep on pushing and that's, I think, the feeling I was really trying to capture at, at the at the very end of the of this of the season. Like the main character is not okay. She's in fact very, very much not okay. But she is still 
alive and she's still functional. And she's, I mean, she doesn't really have a choice about being alive is the thing. But she still has some form of command of herself. And I wish I saw more stories like that, I guess, that just that, that looked at mental illness as a very important component of a human being, but not the definition of the whole human being. And yeah, it's, I don't think we see enough of that. Yeah. I just read, I think this was in Bright Wall, Dark Room. There was this piece about this woman's experience of watching Monk during like a an extended depressive episode and how she like came to appreciate that Monk never get like quote unquote gets better. That, mm-hmm. you know, because it's a police procedural, the main character is kind of static. And she was like, that's what it's like. That's normal. He's got a chronic mental health condition. It doesn't just like magically get better. Right. You just, you find ways to work around it. You 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 kind of organize your life around it because it's a constant presence. It's, it's not going to go away. You might be able to control it some with medication, but you're going to be living with this for the rest of your life. And that kind of affects everything in some respect. So, Sonny, you're a sociologist. You're working on your PhD. And I saw that your dissertation is about the extermination camps of the Holocaust as partially viewed through this idea of heterotopia. And I wasn't familiar with the term or really, frankly, anything about Foucault until you mentioned it. But I'm wondering <laughs> if first if you can tell me what heterotopia means to you, and second, whether or not the protagonist of Gone exists in such a place. Fuck, you know what? I never actually connected those things. I can't believe I'm sitting here saying that, but I never consciously connected those concepts. I, wow. Okay, my mind's kind of blown. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't sure if you had. Yeah, I, I, I wondered if some things from, from research like bubbled into the, the story. Okay, I just got completely new level of insight into my own stuff. This is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let's talk about this. What's who's oh, yeah, Foucault? Let's. What's heterotopia? Okay, um, I mean, it's that's, a, that's such an interesting question because heterotopia is, uh, as a Foucauldian concept, is very, very underdefined. It's actually one of the reasons why I wanted to do a dissertation on it. I I saw this as a, a little piece of sociological theory that was very underexplored, where I could kind of slide in and do my own thing and be my own expert. And to the extent that it's defined at all, it's it's like a space that is connected to the social world, but is also separate from the social world. And in this space, certain rules can be suspended or or ordered differently. Um, control might work in different ways. Uh, it might function kind of as a mirror of the social world, or it might function as an image of what might be in the social world. Um, examples really are the best way of actually actually describing this. And it says something that in the uh, lecture that Foucault gave to a bunch of architects, which is where he most clearly articulates heterotopia, it's mostly just a bunch of examples. It's like, well, it's like this, or it's kind of like this. A couple of the examples that Foucault uses that, that I, I really kind of glommed onto is useful. Um, one of them is of a museum or a library, which is a kind of heterotopia of frozen time. These, there's all of these artifacts of the of the past that are, I mean, you can you can look at them and they affect your ongoing life, but they themselves are unchanging. So that's kind of a heterotopy of time accumulation. Um, but there's also kind of a heterotopy of transience. And uh, the example he uses is a fairground where it's this it's this space that exists for a thing but it only functions as that thing for a very limited period of time. And then the fair closes up and, you know, folds up the tents and moves out of town. And then that space is just kind of there dormant again until the fair returns. And 
those things have specifically to do with time. Um, he also uses uh, prisons and psychiatric hospitals as examples. And, you know, Foucault writes a lot about prisons anyway. But the idea just that these are spaces that are very clearly set aside from the rest of the world, but are still very socially significant for the world as a whole. People go into these spaces, people come out of them, people are changed inside them, people might not come out of them at all. And I I, I have a long-standing interest in, in this sounds like a, this is a weird thing to say, but I have a long-standing interest in genocide. <laughs> and because I'm interested in I'm interested in how people behave at points of extremity. And I mean I think you can see some of that in gone. And the logic that governs human behavior at points of extremity. And I, you know, these these spaces, uh, concentration camps in general, but extermination camps in particular. And, and there's a there's a very very there's some very important differences between those two things. Oh, believe um, me, fourteen years of Jewish education yeah. has taught me acutely the difference between those two things. Yes, yes, um, yeah, you know, uh, and and the, these. These spaces, rules are so profoundly suspended in these spaces. Logic just breaks down. Kind of the rules that, we, the the basic rules that govern reality that we all assume just kind of stopped functioning. Uh, lines between human beings and objects, between life and death, um, between sanity and insanity. These things just completely blurred and in some cases disappeared altogether. And I, I wanted to unpack that. I wanted to kind of, how were these rules suspended? And how did they how did they reform? And most of all, what happens when this space, this heterotopia, actually exists as part of a path toward a utopia? It's a genocidal utopia, but it still is a utopia. So how is this space of heterotopia, which Foucault actually talks about as directly opposed to utopia, actually a part of the process of utopia? And that's that's almost like a one of a, a chapter where it's like, this is important. But I also might do this in another thing that's not this dissertation because I have to graduate at some point. But it's, yeah, there's just, there's there's so much going on in this concept and there are so many different things you can do with it. And Wait, can we can we pull back just, just to get like the abstract really yes. quick? Is, is what you're saying that like Treblinka, for example, exists as this heterotopic place that transforms the German state and like the annexed Polish territory to transform Nazi Germany into a utopia by eliminating and exterminating the Jews? Is that like, and that in so doing creates utopia? Is that the idea of? Exactly. Okay. Precisely. Yes. I feel very good that you you, you grabbed that because it meant that I was marginally coherent. Yes. That is, <laughs> that is essentially what I'm arguing. So all of all of this is, I'm, I'm asking all of this in the context of, of gone and whether or not this like space outside of, I, I don't even want to put like a label onto it. Like it's, it's, it's this like place outside of time and reality, but it's not because they're not, the protagonist isn't dead. But is is in some way kind of living the existence of either a video game avatar or an elementary particle that is being observed and resetting, and all of the various like metaphors that they come up with to like explain their existence. Mm -hmm. What does heterotopia, as it means to you, how does that apply to the world of Gone? Yeah, I mean, like I, like I said, I never even really thought about that consciously until now. But coming off the top of my head, um, I mean, I I think first of all. The, the, the fact that very quickly it becomes a space. I mean, the, in, in the very first episode, as, as far as anybody knows, including the main character, um, it's the whole world. 
But then relatively quickly, it becomes clear that there, there is some kind of a boundary to this space and it is closing. So at that point, we have a space that is not the whole world within which these things are occurring. Um, don't ask me what's going on outside that space because I actually don't really know. But um, with within that space, rules are just being broken all over the place. I mean, time is not functioning the same way. Light is not functioning the same way. Um, the, the boundary between light and dark is becoming very blurry. Uh, even darkness itself by the end of the show is not functioning exactly as darkness because it isn't completely uh, precluding the possibility of sight. And one of the one of the things that most frightens me in my favorite horror movies is that idea of rules completely breaking down and the things that you depend on just to function in the world no longer being reliable. So it's there there is there is kind of an element of horror I think potentially in in the possibility of heterotopia if the rules are suspended or break down in just the right way. So I think I think yeah kind of blocking off this space and then looking at what happens when rules are broken or alternately ordered and how somebody has to reorder their life in response to those things. Um god it's it's so weird that I decided to tell that story. <laughs> <laughs> I I completely see how the two things are connected. I mean yeah absolutely. Uh the the main character arguably is occupying a heterotopic space in some really really important ways. So I'm I'm very curious about your story, Eyes I Dare Not Meet in Dreams, in which a numberless host of dead girls emerge from their graves and refrigerators, reasserting their place in public life, taking up like physical space in public, appearing on television, surrounding Joss Whedon's house, saying nothing. <laughs> um, I, I'd like to start by asking you to define the girlfriend in the refrigerator trope. Okay, yeah. The girlfriend in the refrigerator trope, uh, women in refrigerators, I think actually originally comes from Green Lantern, Okay. Uh, the Green Lantern comics, and it's where a villain whose name I cannot recall uh, ends up punishing the, the Green Lantern by killing his girlfriend and stuffing her body in a fridge. And it's a horribly written death. Uh, it completely disrespects this character uh, because it makes her entire purpose for existing and suffering and dying to punish this guy. So, you know, her very meaningful suffering and death, <laughs> being killed is horrible. Um, her very meaningful suffering and death is rendered completely meaningless because it has no meaning outside from what it's making this guy feel. And that, I mean, once you once you isolate that as a trope and you start looking around at, at various kinds of intellectual properties and, and it's just, just about every story, um, that's gonna pop up a lot. And um, once you start seeing it, you can't really stop. And it, after a while, especially if you're not a cisgender man, it kind of starts to make you a little angry. <laughs> yeah, that's um, I haven't I haven't read it or seen it. Isn't that that's uh, Catherine Valente's piece, right? The refrigerator monologues. Didn't she do a thing? Yes. Yes. That is similar. Yeah, she and I did a reading together, and we both. Um, I actually don't think I read Eyes I Dare Not Mean Dreams, which I maybe should have done. But yeah, we both kind of had the had the same. A very similar take on that in some ways. That's awesome. The protagonist in Gone affirms that they share much of your interest in poetry in Yeats, for example. And the title of this piece is an allusion to T.S. Eliot's The Hollow Men. Eyes I dare not meet in dreams. In death's dream kingdom, these do not appear. Um, and in the story, these dead girls all kind of begin flocking their way to Los Angeles. Uh, my question is, is Hollywood 
death's dream kingdom. Is that a really flattened way to think about this story or is that, am I kind of, am I getting a dart approximately in the right place there? Wow. Um, I mean, I'd actually, I, I, I love going to poetry for titles and uh, Eliot's just a hugely rich well there. And I, I forgot the actual context from which I snatched that line. Um, I mean, yeah, I think in a lot of respects, it it is. I mean, just just because Eyes I, I, I Dare Not Meet in Dreams was written in a kind of fit of rage. Like, I didn't plan most of it. I just kind of, I wrote, it's one of those things where I think I wrote it maybe in an hour, and it just all poured out of me because I was so pissed. And the idea of having them all go to Los Angeles, all go to Hollywood, just felt very natural because, yeah, I think that on some level, conscious or not, I kind of identified the the place where we produce most of our mass media, not just movies, but, you know, TV also, entertainment media in general. That is the spring from which a lot of this stuff comes. And one of the things that I think happens in a place like that is that people tell stories to each other and stories become recursive and people just end up kind of telling the same stories over and over and over again. And everything is very self-reproducing, which means that this trope ends up getting recycled and recycled and recycled. And then it ends up getting thrown back into the rest of the world and we all end up getting exposed to it. And then it ends up feeding right back into the same place. So yeah, it did end up kind of taking almost this I don't want to say charnel house because that gets rid of the dream aspect, but yeah, there's there's just this this kind of idea of of Hollywood as this center of just death on a on a not just a literal but a really thematic and kind of yeah, kind of kind of a, the most profound philosophical sense that this this is where this is where a very pointed kind of death that's only visited on certain kinds of bodies. This is where that happens. And this is where it spreads from. So this is kind of where all these girls have to go. Right. Like, I, I've always thought of Los Angeles as kind of this, like, sticky black altar where we march like the most beautiful corn-fed children of America to. Oh, God, yeah, there's that aspect too. Like, we just dump them, like, straight into the La Brea tar pits and, like, it's just, like, chewed <laughs> up and it... Like, their energy goes pulsing through the veins of the city to, like, uplift a couple terrible rich men. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I I, I was thinking about it in terms of stories, but, I mean, there there is story after story after story of this, you know, bright young thing from the Midwest who comes to Hollywood and, you know, then they end up hacked in half in a field somewhere. And, yeah, it's, it's, it is, it is a place that just chews you up. Or, or at least that's what I've been given to understand. I've never been there. But it, it feels it feels like a Me Too story, even though it was published before the Weinstein stuff started coming out in like October. Mm-hmm. I think you published that uh, at least on the blog. It was from like May 2017, I think. I wrote it a long time ago. Oh, OK. Yeah, I wrote it, I think, three or four years ago, maybe more like three. But I wrote it years ago, long before all this. Sure. It retains its vitality. Yeah, that's it was it was actually kind of interesting to see it published and and then to kind of watch this this groundswell of rage just kind of rise and thinking, wow, I didn't want that to be timely, but it kind of ended up being. Yeah. So I've seen you write in a few places or say in a few interviews that writing about terrible, monstrous things helps us cope with them, that storytelling is a form of resistance. 
-hmm. In your author spotlight with Nightmare Magazine, you said you can shrink them down to an approachable scale and understand them better. And that's a claim to power. What have you been trying to resist with your fiction lately? And what are you resisting in Gone? God, that's, I, I actually, I just finished up, um, Marco actually has it right now. Uh, I'm waiting to hear what he says about it. But um, I just finished up a novella, which is just, it's 25,000 words of nothing but horrible things. And I've been trying to do a lot of thinking since I finished it about what I actually was, why was I doing that? Why was I going into all of these, you know, horrible places over and over and over again? What, what was I working through? And I don't actually know that the horrible things I'm writing about these days are even necessarily about resistance. I think it's just, I don't even want to say that I think it's about trying to understand because I don't think that these things can necessarily be understood. I think it's it's me taking a lot of stuff that I'm being exposed to right now, partly because of the dissertation and also just because, I mean, the world in general has kind of become terrible, <laughs> or at least we are seeing ways in which it was already terrible that maybe we didn't see before. And I'm, I'm just trying to figure out what to do with that. And I think that in, in some of the writing that I've been doing recently, I've been trying to tackle from a fictional standpoint some of the stuff that my dissertation is about, which is people being horrible to each other. But in Gone, I think I was just trying to cope with my own mental illness. I, I think I was just trying to cope with my own feelings of isolation. And that's a worthy fight. That's not. That's not nothing. That's that's something worth resisting. Yeah. It's it's just that I don't know that I would consider it resistance in the political sense. It's it's more. Um, I don't want to say it's me trying to resist myself, but I I think in some ways it almost is just because. You know, when you've dealt with mental illness your whole life, your experience of existence is kind of you're being your own worst enemy in some ways. And me, me trying to figure out how do I face down the things that frighten me most and remain functional. And gone isn't entirely that, but I, I do think I was trying to, by occupying this character who is doing that, uh, I think I was trying to feel my way toward that for myself. It's, I think it's making it sound like it was more of a really deep personal project than it is. But on the other hand, I do think in some respects it is kind of a very deep personal project. It's very inward looking. Sure. I mean, there's a way in which, you know, by, by telling stories about mental illness, you are asserting yourself as a body in public space, mm -hmm. which is, I, I mean, Blah, 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 everything is political. But, like, that's that's a political <laughs> act in its way. No, I, I, I think there's a lot to that. And, and again, I think uh, kind of getting back to um, sort of the beginning of this conversation, the, the sort of the trope where people who uh, have mental illness in some settings are just kind of expected or it's assumed that they'll just go away and they won't be there. And, and the audience will not have to reckon with their existence. And I, yeah, I think just, just the assertion of I'm still here yeah, I do think there's a lot of power in that. What are some struggles that you've had in adapting to the audio medium? And what are some triumphs? And I, I think I talked a little about this in the final behind the uh, scenes episode, uh, which which I didn't post publicly. So a lot of the struggles that I faced have, I kind of already talked a little bit about them, although that wasn't unique to, to audio. It's just trying to figure out where am I going with the story and what am I going to end up saying at the very end of it. But that's something I, I do in, in prose as well. Um, I think the biggest struggles were actually just in the post-production. 
and and the technological sense. Um, I'm I have no budget, and I'm working entirely with Creative Commons sound effects, and I have no training. I have no formal training in audio design or anything, and I taught myself how to use Audacity. So, I've been trying to paint a picture with sound in the way that my favorite audio dramas have done. Ideally, in an audio drama, you're not going to be describing everything to the audience because that ends up sounding, it, it, it's kind of like an info dump in, in fiction. It's just, in prose fiction, it just ends up not working. So I'm, I was kind of thinking, okay, how do I create a sense of immediacy with sound effects? How do I give somebody a sense of space with sound effects? How do I give somebody a sense of what a body is doing with sound effects and not describe very much because there's really no reason for this character to be doing that. So trying to find a way to create visually a world that's entirely based in audio with no budget and a very limited range of sound effects that I have to make all work together in a way that doesn't sound like I threw them all together in Audacity. That that was probably the biggest challenge that I ran into. And I, I don't think I completely made it work, uh, but I, it's my first time doing this. I would have been surprised if I did make it all completely work. In terms of triumph, Honestly, kind of the same thing. Like, as much of a struggle as the sound design has been, and, and I know that there are some things that haven't really worked for people and some things that have. Um, I, for instance, uh, some people have complained about the static, and I agree that that could have been mixed a little better in retrospect, although I did like... I liked the effect. I think that I was trying to work with processing in a way that was still very raw, and I think I learned a lot. There were some things about it I liked. There were some things about it I didn't. But the the moments where I really I listened back to what I had put together, and I was like, "Yeah, that's it. That's exactly what I wanted to do." Um, those were really good moments. Just the the moments where I knew I nailed it didn't come frequently, but when they came, they were just the feeling was amazing because it. It demonstrated for me this thing that you came into this not knowing how to do, you do kind of know how to do it now. And if you were working with better tools, you might be able to do an even better job. So yeah, simultaneously, that was the hardest thing, and it was also one of the greatest joys of this. What other kinds of stories do you want to tell in this medium? I don't know. I, I really don't know. Um, it's I'm still kind of in that period after the end of a project where you you sit back and you kind of you kind of look back over the whole thing and you you get a sense of what worked for you and what you learned and what you didn't learn and what you want to do differently. And you come out of that with a better idea of what you want to do. And I mean, I, I don't, I'm not there yet. I don't really know. I, I have some ideas for what I want season two of Gone to be, but in terms of what else I might want to do with the medium beyond that, I mean, I just, I really don't know. It's, it's kind of a weird place to be because when you learn how to write prose, there you can go anywhere. There's so many different things you can do and so many different stories you can tell. And often you have very clear ideas of what you want to do with that. But I feel like I've kind of stepped into this very big room and I'm still getting a sense of what is in here and what the dimensions of that room are. And I don't, I don't have a good sense of what I can do still. It's a weird place to be. What is a craft thing that you've done elsewhere that you'd love to translate into audio? Or what's something you've seen someone else do that you want to steal? Mm. Well, honestly, the first thing that pops into my mind when you say that is other voices. Partly because of how constrained I was in terms of resources, I, I ended up entirely depending on my own voice here. But I feel like writing for someone else's voice and 
I mean, among other things, it would require that I get more used to scripts, and that's a very different kind of writing for me. I would like to learn how to work with somebody else in a more collaborative way to tell these kinds of stories. And I think in order to do that, I would have to rework the kinds of stories I'm telling in the way that I've been telling them. And it's kind of like when I first started doing this to begin with. It's another entirely new skill set that I would have to learn. But I really would like to know how to do it. I would like to be able to work with other people in a way that ends up producing something that we're all happy with and doesn't end up driving all of us crazy. <laughs> One of the you know advantages of working entirely by yourself is that you're accountable to nobody but you. And you don't have to deal with anybody else except you. And you don't have to work with anybody else's time constraints except your own. And there's, I think there's a trust aspect in opening yourself up to somebody else as a collaborator in that way that I, I feel like I'm missing and that I would like to be able to do in the future. Interesting. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's a really cool and terrifying part of the process to work with, like, other voices. Yeah. Let's see. What other questions do I got? Um, is there anything else you want to talk to talk about that I didn't cover? Is there anything you want to ask me? Um, wow, I'm on the spot now. <laughs> um, no, I mean, you, you, nothing is immediately springing to mind. I didn't really come into this prepared with anything. I was just like, I'll just talk about whatever ends up coming up because that's normally how sure. I roll. Sure, and, and yeah. that's fine. I just wanted yeah. to make sure that I wasn't like misrepresenting anything or that there was like something really important that I forgot to cover that's going to occur to me at three in the morning tonight. I mean, maybe I mean, it'll occur to inevitable. you. I don't think it'll, I don't think it'll occur to me. <laughs> I, All right. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I mean, Sonny, I've reached the end of my, my gone questions and my, my writing questions, but I recognize that some of the stuff that we've talked about today has been a little heavy. Uh, so I do have some lighter questions for you. Okay. Um, if you could befriend any beast of the forest, or what would it be? <laughs> oh God. Um, yeah, I, I, is this, is, you say this is lighter, but now I'm like, fuck, like I have no answer prepared for that. Whereas I could talk <laughs> about all the other stuff forever. Um, God, uh, honestly, it would, it would probably be a wolf, um, because wolves are cool, but also because you don't just befriend one wolf. You befriend a whole pack of wolves, and then you just have this, you know, you have all these fuzzy friends. And, you know, they'll they'll punt for you, and and they'll you can lie in a big fuzzy warm pile. And, yeah, I don't know. It's I just like wolves. They're just cool. But also, yeah, you don't just get one. You get them all. Sure. What is your favorite snack? Uh, cheese. Okay. A specific kind of cheese or... Any kind of cheese. Just cheese. just cheese. Just any kind of cheese. Not not usually in isolation. Um, crackers and cheese, olives and cheese, fruit and cheese, but but everything kind of oriented around the cheese in some respect. Uh -huh. um, I don't know. A good sharp cheddar is always nice. But for for pure snacking, I think I'll always end up coming back to cheese. Nice. Okay. Final question, and I really want you to think about this one. Okay. If you were part of a heist. What would your crime job be? My crime job? Yeah, your crime job. Like, would you be the face? Would you be the frog man? Would you be, like, the whale, like the high roller that strolls up and is like, yes, hello, my name is Maximilian Von Bucks. <laughs> oh, God, heists, heists are stressful. I don't think I'd be good at it. Um, okay. Also a legitimate answer. 
well, this is requiring me to remember what all the roles in a heist are. Is 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 there a role where is there is this incredibly charming, attractive person who's a distraction of some kind? Yes, that's the face. So, you know, the face is the person that, like, goes in, smooths everything over, cases the joint. There's not, like, a lot of pressure. There's no way to, like, make them, right? Like, it's just – you're just a person, like, using your charm to infiltrate a place. And then you go back and report. That would completely be me. I have a very nice collection of cocktail dresses I could wear. Yep. That's the one. Cool. <laughs> and I'm good at makeup. So, yeah, that'd be me. <laughs> awesome. Sunny, thank you so much for coming on RDR. This was wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. Come on back anytime. I would love to. If you could befriend any beast of the forest, what would it be? Or what would your crime job be? What is your crime job? I don't mean to assume, but feel free to launder some of your ill-gotten gains into our Patreon or Sunny's. Sunny's Patreon is at patreon.com slash dynamicsymmetry where you can get some dope flash fiction, behind-the-scenes exclusive podcast episodes, and jewelry made by Sonny themselves. Our Patreon is at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival, where you can get access to our super-secret Discord discussion channel for just a dollar a month. Just this week, I challenged James and Eli to a little bit of Weirdo David Jeopardy. The categories were Ways to Nap, Kinds of Hats, Snacks, and Cheeses of Jesus. You know what? Calling it right now. I'm going to update the Patreon and say that's going to be a weekly thing. Weekly Weirdo David Jeopardy. Only available if you give us a buck a month or more. I'm also going to start developing recipes based on the shows we play here. And if you pledge at the $10 level, you'll get access to my secret audio drama recipe file. You'll get mentioned in the ridiculous credits I like to do. You'll get access to the interviews section of the Discord, where you can submit questions to be included in interviews just like these. You'll also get access to behind-the-scenes extras, bloopers, extended interview cuts, and, again, Weirdo David Jeopardy in the Discord. Ten bucks. Help us hit our first Patreon goal. We are currently 18% of the way there. Can you get us over the hump? If you do that, I will record an episode with Rocco the Mole as the host of the show. If you haven't met Rocco, check us out over at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. Okay, so, right, if you donate 10 bucks a month, one of the perks of being a $10 donor is getting credit where it's due. That is, I'd read your name into the credits like I'm about to do with these jamokes. Roll that music, Matt! Thank you. Our theme music is Danger Digidoo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer is Matthew Boudreaux, crime job, demolitions expert. He keeps a wad of plastic explosive in his cheek at all times, like a squirrel with a death wish. Never know when you're going to need some of that, says Matt. His oral hygiene is otherwise impeccable. Our interview's producer is Eli McElveen, crime job, disguise technician. When he isn't attaching elaborate fake mustaches to the rest of the crew, he's seeking out fallen leaves with holes in them so they look like cute little ghosts. True story, pledge to the Alba Salix Patreon and you can see they've got a whole channel devoted to leaf ghosts. Anyway, crimes. Our associate producer is Sean Howard, crime job, face. With his extremely convincing mustache plastered on, Sean can infiltrate any institution, any organization, any casino, make friends, snap a few strategically located selfies, and get out without raising the slightest suspicion. Our researchers are Heather Cohen and Monique Boudreau, crime jobs, muscle. Heather once broke a man's nose with her index finger. Monique has been trained in 19 forms of martial arts, two of which she invented herself, all 19 of which are deadly. I once dropped off some dossiers at Heather and Monique's dojo and caught the two of them ripping phone books in half with their teeth. 
Our social media manager is James Oliva. Crime job, phone freaker. Yeah, with a PH. You know about this shit? James can spoof a phone system into coughing up its secrets just by whistling. He can sound like anyone, he can get into your voicemail, he doesn't need to know your extension, he's already inside the system. Bingo bango, he says, like a cool person. Bingo bango. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhouse, the millionaire, the mansion, the yacht, the two pot spots, the two hot clocks. He runs the whole thing from a garden of goats and he boats. So much gold, don't know how they float. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome. It's Mattress Firm's 4th of July sale with a preview of our free, free, free event. Get free bed accessories like two free memory foam pillows and a free mattress protector when you take home your new bed for just $5.99. That's a value of over $150 absolutely free. On top of that, you can save up to $400 on the best brands store-wide. Hurry in and beat the crowds. Your budget stretches further at Mattress Firm. Offer valid with a qualifying purchase. Restrictions apply. Valid at participating locations only. For offer details, visit mattressfirm.com sale. The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined and rugged at the same time? Introducing the all-new RAV4 Hybrid. 208 combined horsepower and standard all-wheel drive make it the most powerful RAV4. Plus, with its head-turning style and breakaway speed, it's bound to change the way you think of a hybrid. The all-new RAV4 Hybrid. Toyota. Let's go places. Horsepower. Ratings achieved using the required premium and gasoline with an octane rating of 91 or higher. Premium fuel is not used. Performance will decrease.